This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 165, Literacy, Printing, Markets, and Philosophy. So it's been a bit since I was able to record a new episode, in part because we had COVID run through the house last month, and the after effects of that meant I was not able to do very much for another week or so after that. So it's good to be back recording, and uh, I appreciate everybody being patient with me as I get this episode out. So how about we get started, shall we? The ending of the medieval period coincided nicely with the establishment of the Welsh Act, the creation of the United Country, and Anglicanization of counties within Wales worked as a one-two punch in creating the Wales that would go forward after it. The nobility would morph into, as they would call themselves, gentry, as a sign of the change, the term meaning similar things, but with the added concept that the wealthy and powerful should have a sense of well-born, genteel, and well-bred people. Gentry were not necessarily those with titles or coats of arms, but they still carried an important position within society. With this concept, gentry came to rise as, the new, as a new educated class also approached. These people would bring with them a bundle of new ideas, ones driven from increased opportunities to learn and to grow, and increased access to information. The rise of humanism in Renaissance Europe was an outgrowth of the reintroduction of classical ideas during early modern Europe. This was not as sometimes expressed as if these ideas didn't exist or were completely unknown, but rather it was that they had been exposed to more people and more people seeing them meant that they drove a lot more discussion and thought process than had happened in the past. There, at the time, of course, was very few who were literate enough to appreciate what mostly had been there in the past, and the church, where the chief educators were focused more on theological studies and the philosophy that matched that rather than on discussions of alternatives being written by people many, many centuries in the past. As we enter the 1500s, European values were being questioned, and a new literate class was reading all of this old material and coming up with new ideas. The expansion of this understanding drove people to question what they had considered normal before. Humanism itself came from Italy, an area which drove the Renaissance forward in the beginning around the 13th century. This new literate class, as mentioned previously, in areas around Padua were reading and discussing Aristotle and other philosophical greats of ancient times. Francesco Pet and here's an Italian name I'm not going to say very well, but we'll do our best, uh, Petrarca, uh, better known in English as Petrarch, was the first 
to really read the old classical authors outside of a clerical viewpoint. His influence on early philosophy at the start of the Renaissance, as well as his perspective on education, continued to influence others well beyond his death. He is, in fact, in some quarters, considered the father of the Renaissance. Humanistic ideas would drive into Northern Europe, influencing people as they entered an era where the idea of the divine was changing, where people were questioning their own place in the world, and it created fertile ground for those ideas. Let's remember that in the Catholic era that had dominated for so long, man was a humble servant of God. He was considered to be, or she, something of not as great a value as God. Thus, he was not the pinnacle of creation, but rather something that needed to be recovered, that needed to overcome their original sin, and thus needed God's intervention to do so. All of this drove a lot of the philosophy and thinking of the time period. So as we grow into early modern Europe, one of the things that starts to change is this perception. As the gentry class started to grow, so did the efforts to increase education and study as the center of their lives as opposed to the pursuit of wealth, necessarily, or the pursuit of power. Universities, which had started largely as places of religious learning, were starting to branch out and become much more influential in secular learning as well. Some academics suggest that the historical trend of education in Europe from the 16th century to the late 18th century shows major growth and expansion of schooling, vocational training, and higher education. This growth was multifaceted as economies began to expand. Cities continued their growth, and the general needs of bureaucratic record-keeping expanded tremendously. Along with all the other changes that arrived in the 15th century came the printing press. No longer were documents being written largely by clerical classes in monasteries hidden in the hills, near rivers and oceans in natural environments. These duties were now slowly becoming a part of a new age and were coming out of that time period. By 1500, printing presses operated throughout Western Europe had already produced more than 20 million books, a startling amount to be sure. But over the next 100 years, printing presses created an estimate of 150 to 200 million copies, an increase of about tenfold from what had come the previous century. By the 16th century, presses existed across Europe, and with them came a number of new ideas that could be pushed out quicker than ever. As always, with a revolution of this nature, there are unexpected exchanges that would likely have surprised those who came before. Before this period, books and knowledge were precious and contained. If you could not memorize how to do things or to tell a story, there were few alternatives open to you, especially in the commonplace market. Creating written documents was tedious and expensive, and comparatively, the education needed to do it for yourself was not something that most had access to. One could argue that that still remains the case even after this, but by comparison, where typically most of the clerical duties and most, I mean, literally the name cleric comes from, you know, a cleric. So clerical duties themselves and all of the natures of carrying on literate society come out of this time period because there's a 
pressure to try and expand this. Simply having a base knowledge in something now wasn't good enough. Now you had to understand things on various levels. And not only would Latin be a key component of your understanding, so would your local language. Thus, we start to see a lot more writing in local languages expand from this point onward. All of this becomes incredibly important to how society continues to advance. And of course, as we said, printing presses have to change all that. Merchants suddenly need to keep track of records, not only because of taxes, but also because of basic understandings of finances to know what was in stock, what was going out, how money was changing hands. And in order to do that, they themselves either had to learn at least basic numeracy and basic literacy, or they had to hire bookkeepers who could do the same sort of things. And all of that administration and records collection became increasing and more diverse and more complicated. As well, day-to-day discussions and information could be broadened by all these new ideas flowing in and out of growing centers, those centers, of course, being the city, major centers in European countries suddenly became outgrowths of an explosion of knowledge. And it wasn't just, you know, someone in London reading just English documents or Latin documents. They were reading German documents and Italian documents and French documents. All of these things were being passed around because of the ease at which you could print them out now. So in a way, it kind of works like our current explosion with the internet where the access to information just goes from zero to 60 so fast that that people aren't prepared for it there's so much going on that it it starts to challenge everything about society something we're going to get in much more detail in the next few episodes but as well it also develops in new building processes in new understandings about science and math and so many other things that will come about because there's so many more people working on this understanding. Within cities, and as more ideas were flowing amongst the middle and upper classes in this period, at a faster rate than at any time likely since the Roman imperial period, the general sense was that throughout the 16th century, books production increased and the cost of books decreased, making books more accessible, more affordable, both to the upper classes and also to the general public, thus improving the incentives to become literate. Literacy in this area was very diverse, from a philosopher, someone like Martin Luther, down to an individual who may have been able to sign their own name and not much else. So understanding what literacy is is a little bit more difficult than what we think of now. It's not simply the fact that someone knows how to read. It could be as simple as someone just knowing the letters to sign their own name. So keep that in mind when we talk about these kind of things. As the Renaissance ideas spread across Western Europe, it began to expand and influence all walks of life, even in Wales. While the nation continued to be largely rural and institutions were focused on a few areas and towns and villages to the north and south, there were still discussions that were increasing as the world changed and what must have, at the time, seemed a rapid flurry of changes during the reigns of Henry VIII and his children. The gentry in Wales, as their power grew after the Wales Act, became much more influential amongst the locals and started to expand their learning and literacy as they gained more free time and more ability to do such with 
not having to send as many children off to war, the changes that were happening within the church and the demands and needs to send clerical people about. You didn't necessarily have to have them involved anymore. There was a number of things that changed dramatically in this period. Also, the middle class and merchant class, which is largely what the middle class was at this time, were also gaining financial benefits during this period that, while smaller than what would become later, still saw a burgeoning class that had the ability to achieve some of the financial gains that the rich had while not necessarily being massively above the lower classes. In agriculture, the wool and cloth trade over the century would move from Carmarthen and Cardiff north to Denby, Marineth, and Montgomery, all of which flowed into Shrewsbury, which became the chief port of all wool and agricultural trade coming out of Wales at the time. Something that had been happening already was now sped up quite dramatically at this point. This made it easier to move out of southern towns where these agricultural people bringing their produce in would face taxes and tariffs because of the way that in the past finances were collected. You basically would be helping the local town and and village finance itself through these tariffs and taxes. So by going straight to Shrewsbury, you kind of cut out the middleman. For the first time since the arrival of the medieval period, major supplies were now moving around England and Wales freely. Obviously, this was overly favoring small groups of concentrated wealth, but the peasants who were also seeing this were dramatically changing in their own way. In one respect, the Welsh countryside was starting to depopulate after the centuries of wars and diseases were only now starting to recover their former population numbers. Famine, that often creeping killer, still remained a constant threat during the pre-industrial period as farmers still built around the survival of their families while providing for others. It basically meant that there was little time, little ability to gain a leisure period because you spent so much of your life growing and ranching and trying to do the basics to keep yourself alive. Keep in mind, most farmers in this period, you don't raise things just for yourself. You're raising it for yourself. You're raising it for landlords. You're raising it for the king. So all of that goes out before you even get a shot at things. So if you starve to death, it only affects the government because they lost a bit of income, not because you're dead. Because this need to have everyone working to help feed the family, the government and local aristocrats who likely owned the land that these people rented, few peasants could afford to take the time needed to be educated. And if anyone was given at least a small amount of literacy, it might only be a single person throughout the entire household. The fight for survival began early and did not stop until the grave, and they just didn't have time to do these kind of things. It would explain the idea of something you would see later in history where in one person in the house reads to everyone else. So like passages from the Bible, uh, stories from favorite books, all of these things would become something that people would take part in and listen, and it would be a part of your upbringing. So that expansion of that idea begins here. It's certainly not to the extent it would be later, and certainly by no means 
how it would be in the Victorian period where you have mass education starting to happen and mass literacy happening. But at this point, that's kind of where we begin. It would take mass changes in how farming worked over the 19th and 20th century to industrialize the process to the point where these issues become less ever-present. So while we talk about the benefits of education and growing literacy, we have to remember that it's still very concentrated in a small class at this point. Literacy would grow into a necessity during the following centuries, but it was still a long way for many of the lower classes. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the 17th century, as an example, the UK would see a sea change in literacy, as for the first time, over half of the population would have some form of literacy. Only the Netherlands, with a similar level of literacy, would be equal them in this period. Of course, this would influence British colonists, who would continue to stress education as they arrived in the colonies, and it would be the backbone of the Enlightenment, both at home and abroad. As these advances continued, the English still lagged behind other nations in colonization of the New World. The English government under Henry VIII and the resulting chaos of succession left little focus on exploiting the areas discovered by Cabot at the end of the previous century. It would be much later, during Queen Elizabeth's reign, that we would start to see commissions for explorers to search for the Northwest Passage to India, one of those being Martin Frobisher. From 1576 to 1587, Forbisher, as well as John Davis, explored along the Atlantic coast of the New World. Neither were able to find this mythical passage, and 
instead found northern Canada and the Arctic too formidable to get through. At no point during this period were there settlements established, though there were attempts to put forts there. It would only begin really in the 17th century as the English colonies followed the French, Dutch, and Spanish to the coastal areas of North America. During all this change, the Welsh gentry became enamored with a philosophical stance that emphasized the individual and social potential and agency of human beings. As I discussed earlier, one of the things that we had talked about was the, while humanity was the center point of creation under biblical ideas, he was also a downtrodden and horrible figure that needed to be saved by God as we see changes coming to the philosophies that were being created in this time period, instead it flips this whole idea on its head. It considers human beings as a starting point for serious moral and philosophical inquiry. The idea that humanity was the pinnacle of God's creation formed into this philosophy of humanism, wherein the whole center of the philosophy is based around humanity and the rise of humanity and the importance of humanity on the earth. The Welsh gentry believed that they obtained their status by exalted ancestors who were favored by God to lead their communities. Thus, they were already naturally imbued with the rights to govern the people. It would be this concept that would see the rise of the divine right of kings during the Enlightenment period as they viewed themselves as rulers for God on earth, placed there by their birthright. In other words, genealogy determined why you were in the position you were in. This could only happen in an era where positions started to firm up, where you had ancestral descendancies being passed from one to another. If you had income, if you had wealth, if you had titles, those wouldn't be flipping back and forth because various lords would be killed and the king would have to pass them on to somebody else. Instead, it would be passed down to descendant after descendant after descendant, thus building this idea that obviously the reason why we're so blessed is because God pointed out the fact that, yeah, you're so wonderful, you've been blessed with this. So thus, everybody else should have to listen to you. They should have to be governed by you because obviously God supports you. It's, it's a concept which became very popular in a lot of discussions that will happen later on. But this is kind of where it reaches its beginning points, at least in Christian thought. And of course, people started to point to their famous ancestors as if their accomplishments meant that they had passed these accomplishments down to them as well, something that would create some of the massive genealogies that would be collected by the upper classes during this period. This idea that you had to find a famous ancestor to tag to yourself so that you could claim them as being important enough suddenly becomes key. And this is where, if you've studied genealogy at all, you know that one of the comments that you will hear from genealogists is that once you get past 1500, everything gets super sketchy. Well, part of the reason for that is because of this kind of stuff going on, because all of a sudden you've got clerics and bookkeepers keeping track of various genealogies. And whenever something was a little dodgy or didn't fit or there wasn't evidence, they would put in their own version of that. And so you could stretch someone's life back to Moses or Adam or Jesus, depending on the circumstance, because it suited the idea that, of course, this person would be linked to all these famous people, in quotes, because 
they reach this pinnacle as being the king or the queen or the local lord, fill in the blank what you want. It would always show this descendancy as being important. Thus, to get back to my point, in genealogical circles, there's a lot of doubt cast about this. And so it's one of the reasons why people are very reticent to go farther back in genealogies because of this kind of thing. In keeping with the humanist values, Welsh gentry increasingly sought good education for their sons. Education at grammar school moved from England to Wales in the latter half of the 1500s as Bangor and Ruthin opened schools during that period. Many of these gentry also sent their boys on to Shrewsbury and eventually London. The idea of living within the city of power was an attractive one, given how it would be seen as the ultimate example of courtly ruling in life. The courts of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I were important places to be seen, as well as important for you to see as a potential ruler of either an estate or a village. Also, humanist ideas around gentility took firm hold during the Elizabeth's reign. You have to understand, we're not talking about you know being kind or something. This is a part of the understanding of more than that. It was a part of a philosophy that surrounded yourselves with beauty, both within and without, education as well as experience. From elegant manor houses, which became increasingly more magnificent, reflecting the humanist notion of elegance, and surroundings which were environmentally pleasing became also increasingly opulent at this time period. Grounds now provided more than just defensive barriers, but also educational or meditative spaces rather than just defensive ones. The beauty in all things that was seen as becoming more important, or at least just as important, as the education in all things. This is part of why we see buildings in the Tudor period look a lot more elaborate. They have more color. They use brick structures increasingly over the old stone castles and manors, which during other periods were to over-function above form. The long peace in England and Wales from Henry VII to Elizabeth I, with only relatively small periods of upheaval under Mary and various uprisings that happened during this period, but comparatively small, meant that wealth expanded, and so too did the desire to continue to acquire power, wealth, land. Obviously, those things now were of greater importance. The national or regional aspirations of former Welsh nobility may now have been sublimated into English life. It did not mean that there was no nationalistic thought, but most writers, and especially those seeking payment, wrote in Latin and that really did remain the lingua franca of Western Europe, even in the middle of the Reformation. According to historian W.P. Griffith, the fact that there was no native universities or large urban communities to nurture academics and scholars meant that the humanistic values of the age shone in Wales through the prism of English experience, and I would also argue in the English language. Most Welsh gentry sent their young adult men who needed further education to either Oxford or Cambridge, which were the only choices for several hundred years in England. Meanwhile, in Scotland, they were able to establish five universities somehow, but in England only two. While there had been plans to establish a university under Glyndwr, that was, of course, as close as it ever got. 
The first Welsh university would be in Aberystwyth, and it was established in 1872. It would then be followed shortly after by Cardiff University in 1883 and Bangor University in 1884. As you can see, this is hundreds of years after all of this. As you can imagine, all education was done in English. At Oxford and Cambridge, almost all perspectives, learning, and beliefs were English ones. So when a young Welsh noble finished his time there, they would be firmly entrenched in the values of England. The Tudor period was certainly not one without fighting, civil strife, or foreign wars, but compared to the previous 500 years that had preceded it, it looked positively peaceful. It allowed many to grow wealthy on the back of that peace, and in so doing, more had had time to educate themselves and their children. The idea of education becoming much more important comes in this period, and by education I mean literacy. In an era of the printing press and new ideas, it was that combination that would lead to the higher ambition and expansion of this philosophy and of this idea that would then eventually change how the entire perspective of society would work and would open the door for one of the biggest changes that would come to England and Wales in this time period, which of course was the Reformation itself, which totally rewrote what social safety nets tax collection, all sorts of things that had been working throughout the medieval period would come to an end and in its place would be established a very different set of circumstances, ones that would lead to all of the problems that would come over the next 200 years over religion in England and Wales. And on that note, I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope you are safe and healthy as you can be. And, uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also contact me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And as well, if you would like to help this podcast continue to finance things like books and my ability to carry out these things, um, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash welsh history thank you very much to all those who do contribute you are honestly the reason why i'm able to continue and i cannot speak more highly of you but to all those who listen and pass on this podcast thank you so much you are the reason why i continue to do this and through everything that's gone on you are continued to be the reason why i will fight through this difficult time in history and continue to work towards trying to make this podcast as best as it can be to represent the people of Wales as best as possible and their history. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Goodbye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. 
Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.